In a moment, uh, we're going to hear the Bible read, and I'm going to talk about it. But I just wanted to say a little bit before the Bible reading today, because today we're sort of jumping in in the middle of a story that not everyone might be familiar with. To help us understand that, I'm going to begin by talking about this film. Hopefully it should appear on the screen. Um, There we go. Yeah, 12 Years a Slave. Um, Now, this you will probably, unless you've had your head under a rock for three years... Um, I've heard of this film, 12 Years a Slave, uh, directed by Steve McQueen. It's a really sort of harrowing account of slavery in colonial uh, America. And uh, uh, lots of people, nominated for lots of Oscars and things like that. Now, just say I said to you, this is a really great film for understanding the problems that we have in race relations today. And you said to me, oh, well, maybe you're right. But I'm not specifically interested in colonial American history, so I think I'll give the film a miss. Well, fair enough. People might not want to go and see 12 Years a Slave for all sorts of reasons. But the importance of that film was not that it was the most interesting bit of history ever. The importance of the film for 2013 when it was released was that the roots of all sorts of racial problems, of unjust systems, of barriers between us, have their roots then. They're all displayed for us in that story. So saying, I'm not interested in the history, misses the point. Steve McQueen did the film because he was saying, yeah, yeah, it is a historical story, but even though it's historical, you're in it somewhere. Somewhere in that story, you're there. Now, here at Christchurch, we are Jesus people. We think Jesus is the most interesting person we could talk about. And this series over four Sundays, we're doing four aspects of Jesus, particularly the sort of arc of Jesus' story. And we've called it Open to Question because we hope you will be open to questioning if the things that Jesus did and said have something to do with you. And we're going to have our reading in a moment from the Bible, which on the face of it just looks like the death of an apparent criminal in first century Palestine. Now, you might hear that reading and think, well, that's common enough. Rome was a pretty brutal empire. Had no concern for justice for the poor. I'm just, though, not interested in that bit of history. That bit of history, not interesting to me. I will sit here and politely appear to listen, but actually I'll be checking my phone to see, you know, important things, like how Kylie Jenner is doing in her spat with the real Kylie. Um, The football results, the transfer rumours, I'm going to see Donald Trump's latest exploits. I'll scroll through that because I'm not really into the history of Middle Eastern, you know, 2,000 years ago. There's all something much more real and more grabbing to me. But listen, what I want to say is, remember 12 Years a Slave. This book we're going to have read in a minute is, by the way, the most influential piece of writing on the world that we live in now, even though it was not written in a place or a language we would recognize. But aside from that, the way this history is recorded, the writer, Mark, is going to say, listen, every person who's ever lived is actually in this story. In the same way in that film, none of us were there, but all of us feature in it somewhere or other, Mark is saying it's the same with this story. It's a bit of history, but you are in it somewhere. So, uh, Pete is going to come and read 
this bit of the story to us now. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to reach Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And so verses 25 to 39. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Thank you very much, Pete. So as I said, Mark's view, who wrote this story, is that everyone is in it. And the first thing Mark is saying is, you can be the crowd. Even from afar, a lot of this apparently common story is very strange. I wonder if you saw that as we read it. Here is this man who, if you've read his life story in this book, doesn't seem to actually have done anything wrong. Here in what is a sort of pretty bloodthirsty penal system, which is not ever just, is not interested in justice. In that system, Pilate, this merciless governor, is saying he's done nothing wrong. So 
sort of think, in that system, he really mustn't have done anything wrong. They didn't care about getting it right. Even stranger, the chief priests, who were this man's own local community leaders, who took it upon themselves to defend the community against this foreign power, they were siding against him to get him into trouble with these foreign rulers. I believe there are innocent people who go down for things today. I'm sure it happens. But at the very least, they usually make some sort of defense. That's how we know, isn't it? They claim their innocence. They certainly do that, don't they, if the death penalty is looming. And yet Jesus says, next to nothing. But the strangest thing of all to me in this story is this is the how the crowd behave. I wonder, did you get how the events unfold? It's this festival called the Passover. That's a very important day in this nation's national life. It's a bit like Independence Day or Chinese New Year. It's a celebration of the nation. And it's all the more important to celebrate that when you feel like the nation is controlled by this foreign power. And because they were ruled by this evil empire, to keep them quiet once a year on their national day, they said, okay, we'll give you a prisoner. Someone you know can be set free. It kept them thinking that they had some significance. And it was easier for the Romans, wasn't it? One less to execute. And the crowd choose this man called Barabbas. Now, he really was a threat to the peace he actually had led a rebellion against the Romans. He really was putting the community in danger. He would cause trouble if he got let out. Yet the crowd are somehow stirred up to ask for him instead of this innocent, incredibly gracious, always loving, servant-hearted man. It's strange. You may be here today and know next to nothing about Jesus, but I guess if you know anything at all, you will know something about him being a moral example of someone who was good, who did good, who helped people. Look at Pilate's question. Remember, Pilate, this merciless man, did not care about justice in verse 14. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. That is a really, really good question. And nobody really knows the answer. See how this question goes? What crime has he committed? What's the answer to that? Crucify him. We can't name the crime. We can only say we want him dead. We don't know what he's done wrong. If anything, we don't care. We just want rid of him. They were the crowd. You can be the crowd. I try and talk to people who don't call themselves Christians as much as I can. I really want to understand what people think. People have all sorts of objections to Christianity that it's interesting to talk about. But when it comes to the actual person of Jesus, well, he is a tricky one. Because he is a very compelling figure. All sorts of people who hate the church still think Jesus is great. Perhaps 
they will even say he's the best example of humanity that we've got. And that is awkward because he is also uncompromising in his claims. His claims very clearly were that everyone who has ever lived should respect his authority. I mean, that's quite a claim. His claim very clearly was that he is the one, the only one sent by God to tell us the truth about ourselves. And what he does, and this is what makes him sort of grab us, is he uses this power, this seemingly unlimited power, to help people. Each time he seems to do something scary, something that if I could do it now, you would all run screaming from the room. You find him next, caring for someone, talking to someone, forgiving someone, allowing himself to be wrongly convicted so that someone else can go free. And yet, I don't want him. He is awkward for me, this gentle Palestinian. Because he does claim that I am accountable to a God above me. He does say I have no choice but to respond to his claims. His teaching is embedded into the history of the world, the laws of my country, my sense of what is morally good and bad. But when he claims to be alive today, to be the God who made me, to be the one that I need to respect and trust and honor, when he says I will do nothing more important than deal personally with him, well, I don't care how good he is, I just need to be rid of him. What crime has he committed? They shouted all the the louder. Crucify him. what we all do with Jesus. We can't find anything wrong with him, but we do not want him making these claims. I have to get rid of him. I've got a good friend who's uh, not a Christian, but thinking about Christianity, and he said to me a little while ago, I really like Jesus' great moral teaching. I'm just not happy with his claim to worship, that he's God and we should worship him. I said, I find that quite odd because most of Jesus' quote-unquote moral teaching is, in fact, about himself and the fact that we should worship him. And my friend said, okay, but forget all of that a minute. I just like this bit called the Sermon on the Mount, which is apparently all about Jesus saying you should be nicer. I said, listen to me, the Sermon on the Mount, if you read it, is mostly about the fact that we need Jesus' help to face the judgment that he is bringing to the whole world. He was like, yeah, yeah, forget that bit of the Sermon on the Mount. I just like this little one bit here, which says, love your enemies. I was like, great, everybody loves that. But if you read that section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us he is the person who loves his enemies, and currently that includes you. And the thing he wants is to love you and be restored to you. Oh no, I don't like that. Take him away. This loving, forgiving man whose teaching I apparently love, no, I do not want him. Hang him up. 
Get rid of him. Maybe you're even doing that here in church. You're here saying you're a Christian, but in fact what you're saying is, I like some of the things Jesus said and did. But relating to him, having him in charge of my life, I don't want him. Well, what crime has he committed? Crucify him. You can be the crowd in this story. So even if you're not interested in the history, you'll find you're still in the story. However, there's obviously somebody totally unique in this story, isn't there? Someone you can't be. Remember, as the story of the execution unfolds, it was set up for someone else. The cross, the nails, the sponge filled with vinegar to keep them alive longer and torture them more. It was all in this cupboard named Barabbas, set up for him. He was the one supposed to be getting crucified. He was the one in prison for murder, facing the death penalty. Two of his mates were crucified beside Jesus. Mark tells us in verse 15, it should have been Barabbas, their fellow rebel in the middle of them. And so it all proceeds, doesn't it, with Jesus in the role that Barabbas should have had, executed. He's an innocent victim of the death penalty, but then again, the Roman Empire is never claiming to be a world leader in human rights. One peasant dying in the place of another. Story over. Except not. Did you notice all of the Jesus details in the story? They had to put together a sign, presumably this one hastily scribbled, saying what he's being crucified for is that he's claiming to be a king, not allowed in a dictatorship, just in case you ever find yourself in one. Verse 2 shows us that isn't actually true. He'd not claimed that. And the king is has a mocking crown put on his head and then is raised up, ruling from his place of death. There's an oddness, isn't there, about Jesus, not true of Barabbas, that the onlookers noticed. Did you notice what they said? He saved others, but he can't save himself. Barabbas was just a normal guy, an everyday criminal, but these people had seen Jesus do miracles again and again and again. And they looked at him dying and said, it's strange, isn't it, that there's no miracle now? His enemies think that's sort of funny. I think that's pretty dark humor. But it's certainly strange. Three hours of darkness at noon. Okay, this is not normal. The darkness in the literature of these people was a sign of God's anger. And here it is displayed for three hours as this good and peaceful man dies. And then his own anguished cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A call of religious heartbreak. Not likely to be heard by hardened criminals as they die. The other two were busy hurling insults at this guy, is what we see. Perhaps the strangest of all, miles away, Mark tells us, the other side of the city in verse 38, a large, thick curtain rips 
at the moment he dies, from top to bottom. It's not just a straight swap, Barabbas for Jesus. No, there is something very different about Jesus' death. The way this story works is that you find yourself in it. You can be the crowd, but you can't be Jesus. The death he died, even though it was in the place of someone else, only he could die. You see, Jesus really is the king over everything. We see throughout his life, he has this limitless, terrifying authority. Over evil and sickness and death, they throw their worst at him throughout his life, and he just takes them on. Most of the time, he just takes them on by speaking. He doesn't even need to do anything. There's an amazing bit, Mark chapter 5, if you want to read it, where there's this guy possessed by an evil spirit, and he's tearing the place up, and everybody around the area is terrified of him, and Jesus speaks a sentence. And the next thing, the people come along, and I love the way it describes it. The man is sitting clothed and in his right mind. And the people actually are even more terrified of that than they were of the man. Because just his words. Evil is gone. And this king over everything chooses death. Do you see that? There's no struggle to proclaim his obvious innocence that even Pilate could see. He says just enough to get convicted. Because this king rules from the place of death that he chose. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. It is strange that he chooses not to save himself. But that's precisely because he wants to save others. Save others from what? Well, think about that mysterious, inky, chilling darkness in the middle of the day. It's a sign, remember, in this people's view of the world, that the God who made the world is angry when he brings unexpected darkness. Remember that eerie, grief-stricken cry at the moment of his death. The God who he always clearly loved and honored has abandoned him at this moment. Why did the king choose death? Because Jesus, the one who committed no crime, he died. He took the anger of God. He took the separation of God we deserved for us when he died. You see, you can't be Jesus because there's something true about us that is not true about him. Jesus uses this word for it in Mark's gospel, unclean. He says, we produce from within ourselves, with no responsibility we can pass to anyone else, bad stuff. We produce jealousy. We produce anger. We produce murder. We produce pride. No one teaches us that. It just wells up out of our hearts. We like to blame our situation. And of course, terrible situations can be made better by generosity and forgiveness and love. But that's not what we produce. We produce anger 
and bitterness and hopelessness. Jesus says, that's uncleanness. We are dirty. We are bad. And the real problem with being unclean is that there is a God who is perfectly clean. And we are separated from him. These people lived with a big sign of that right in the middle of their national life. That curtain. The curtain that ripped. Well, it was in the middle of the temple that all the people went to to meet with God. But the strange thing about these people and their God was that they weren't allowed to meet him. There was this thick, impenetrable curtain right in the middle where he was supposed to live. Saying to them in the loudest possible way, God is clean and you are not. You can't come in. And here's Jesus. The one who never produced any twisted, terrible stuff out of his heart. Saying he has been separated from God. Dying in the end, not from the nails in his hands and the blood loss and the thirst, but from being abandoned by his God and Father, the source of all life, taking on himself all of the uncleanness of everybody else, the separation, the anger that God has, all of the evil we produce on him. He saved others. But he can't save himself. What nonsense. He didn't save himself so that he could save others. And so at that moment, the curtain rips. Jesus dies, the curtain rips, and top to bottom. Did you notice that? Not someone who'd stood at the bottom. If I'd been tearing it, I'd have to stand at the bottom and tear it up. It starts tearing at the top and goes down, as if, as if it's God saying, listen, I have reached down to tear this in two. All the uncleanness is taken by someone else, the only one who could take it. And so all the warning signs around God to remind us of our uncleanness are ripped down by him. As if to prove it, apparently, the first person to believe in him to trust in him, to realize who he was, was the very centurion who had overseen his crucifixion. Did you notice that? Verse 39. The very person who had lifted the hammer and taken the nails to God's own son seems to be the very first Christian believer. There could be no more visual demonstration, could there, that the curtain is ripped. Do we really think God means it? Does God really want to put all the anger and uncleanness for my sin onto someone else? It seems hard to believe that that could be true. But God rips the curtain. He says, doesn't he? Here is the demonstration. It's done. There's no uncleanness that can now stop you coming back to me. You see this strange, distant world, this odd story of a political death, it suddenly becomes relevant. You can't be Jesus 
because you, like all of the rest of us, are unclean. Lots of people try to do that with Jesus' story. They try and copy Jesus. They say, yeah, I'm against injustice like Jesus. I love my enemies like Jesus. I can help the poor like him. No, you can't be Jesus. The uniqueness of this death calls you into the story, not as Jesus, but as the criminal. He rips the curtain for you. The God who made everything, who you shouldn't be able to get anywhere near, says, listen, come in. Come close. Know me. He didn't save himself so he could save others. Which brings us back to the forgotten character in this story. The freed criminal, Barabbas. The one for whom the cross was prepared. The one who could have looked on, really knowing it should have been him. What happened to him? Well, here's the answer. We don't know. Because it doesn't matter. Here's the third thing we see. You can be Barabbas. Now, in 1998, this film came out called Saving Private Ryan. That's nearly 20 years ago. Last week, I was told off for spoiling the end of a film. This film is now 20 years old. If you have not seen it yet, I cannot apologize for that. Uh, You really need to invest in a Netflix subscription. And Saving Private Ryan is the story of four brothers involved in the Normandy landings in the Second World War. And three of them are killed, and one of them is missing. And to spare the family the grief of losing all their children, this man is sent in to find the fourth Private Ryan. And uh, he tracks him down. And at the end of the film, just as he tracks him down and gets him to safety, the guy sent in to rescue him gets shot. And he's lying there, bleeding on the ground at the end, dying. And he turns to Private Ryan, who he's saved. He grasps his hands and he says, you earn this. I died for you, now you'd better live in a way that you earn it. And then the film flicks forward to the end of his life, and it's Private Ryan in his 80s turning to his life and saying, was I a good enough person? Did I earn that guy dying for me? It's the kind of soul-searching I'd expect to see recorded by Barabbas here to really bash home the point of the story. The Son of God died for you, Barabbas. He took your place. So sweat some blood and tears. Reform your way. Show you were worth it. People have actually done this over history, uh, written films and novels about him, uh, spending the rest of his life imagining that Jesus died in his place and what that would mean. But listen, there's only one thing we find out about Barabbas, isn't there? One word to describe him. Released. What a wonderful word. We don't know anything else. We know some stuff about his background. We know he would have been held in a fort outside the city. We can imagine him hearing the baying of the crowds and looking at his hands and thinking of the nails going through them. Perhaps regretting the murder he committed or perhaps angry and resentful. He can, we can imagine him hearing the soldier's steps along the corridor, his heart pumping, the sweat pouring out all over, the sick fear of his coming death. 
We can imagine the grumpy Roman soldier just unlocking his chains, pushing him out the door. For killing someone else, mate, you're free. We can imagine it all to that point, but beyond that, we just can't. We don't know. We just have this word. Released. The important thing about Barabbas wasn't how bad he'd been. The important thing about him wasn't that he went on to do something great. The important thing about him, the only important thing about him, was that Jesus died for him. You know, there are people here today held back from what they once were from thinking they can be a Christian. I'm too far away. I'm too foreign, too different, too distant. You look at the Christians around you, living what we view as a Christian life, and think, I couldn't do that. I couldn't become that. Listen, turning away from rejecting Jesus and knowing God, trusting him is a life-changing experience. But let's just be clear, Jesus never says, earn this. That is not the offer. Barabbas is this beautiful word, released. You've no idea whether he became worthy of that or not. And the offer to him is the offer to you, whoever you are. Incidentally, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, well, I am a Christian, I trusted this age ago, and I know all of this. Just as an aside, if you've trusted this before, that does mean that this very same offer is the offer to anybody that you know. Christians are terrible at this. We think about the people in our lives and think they're not Christians. I'd like them to become Christians. But that person's just a bit beyond the pale. They wouldn't be interested. They could never live a Christian life. They're too tough, too hardened, too cynical, too bad. I think some of us have probably been even doing that this week. We've got these series of events on. We're inviting people who aren't Christians. You've probably looked at your contacts And thought, well, maybe then, but not then. How could God teach you that that's wrong? I don't know. Maybe by dropping into the story that Jesus died in the place of a murdering guy in a terrorist group. Would that convince you? You're not convinced yet? You can invite anybody into this relationship? What about the first convinced believer being the person who actually hammered the nails into Jesus' hands? Stop sewing the curtain back up. Jesus died to rip it in two. Everything about this story means stop holding back the offer from people who don't fit the profile. But I guess there will be people here who yourself have never accepted Jesus' offer. And to you I say, you can be Barabbas. You don't have to be. You can say, as many people do, no, that's fine, I'll take my own rap. Yeah, I'm not perfect, yeah, Jesus was a good guy, but I'll pay for my own uncleanness, put me back in the cell, punish me. You can choose that. But I've got to say, at least one of the reasons God arranges for this terrible public death of separation 
for Jesus is so we know how bad paying for our own sin will be. You can be Barabbas. So why wouldn't you be? Own your guilt. Admit that the bad stuff comes from inside you. Be real. And then let this gracious, kind, willing, loving, servant-hearted, brilliant, glorious, excellent Son of God, let him pay for you. The curtain is ripped. You, right now, can walk in and begin a life of being made clean, of knowing God. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. You can be Barabbas. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is willing to swap places with us. We pray for your help to believe that. Let's just take a couple more moments of quiet to reflect on what we've heard before we sing.